Okay. How was that? What did you experience, especially in relationship to the five suggestions and also trying to stay with every breath for five minutes? Yeah, and by the way, I, yeah, tell me what, please. I'm not quite understanding it. Sure. Okay, so say that again, please. Sure. Well, very briefly, um, <clears throat> so the comment in question was about using practices like this to relieve physical pain. And there's uh, a lot of interesting new research, which was actually summarized in a nice article in the Buddha Dharma magazine uh, that just came out, that shows that pain flows through basically two pathways in the brain. One is, in effect, what the Buddha called the first dart, which is the actual bare sensation itself. And then there's also a second pathway that essentially corresponds to what he called the second dart, which has to do with the anguish component of pain, the suffering component of pain. Right? The pathway of the first dart basically comes in from the sense organs, goes to the thalamus, which is like a big switching station inside the brain, and then it gets sent up to the somatosensory cortex up around here. That's the pure sensation part. The more emotional component, the psychological component of pain, what it's like to have this sensation, goes to a part of the brain we'll talk about a lot, and I actually have a nice MRI slide of that part of the brain I'll show you later on, called the anterior, which means frontal cingulate cortex. It's kind of hard to show. It's sort of toward the front, down, and in, and in the middle. All right. And that part of the brain is where it seems that the emotional, psychological, suffering, dukkha aspects of pain are constructed and transformed into our, the contents of awareness. When people do practices like this, they seem to uh, downregulate. They seem to calm down the anterior cingulate cortex and calm down the um, fear and threat messages it's then sending to the other parts of the brain. And one of the most um, affected parts of the brain through meditation is the anterior cingulate cortex because besides constructing the subjective experience of suffering, it also is very involved. It's probably the most important part of the brain for controlling attention. So people who regularly do a mindfulness practice, and I'll show you a slide of this later, build up the brain literally, because neurons that fire together, wire together, build up the part of the brain, in, including the parts of the brain, including the anterior cingulate cortex. So I think that's probably a neurological account for people's psychological experiences, as you have, of course, of how practice helps control pain. Yeah? Me too. Yeah. Could you speak louder and then, or, or stand up perhaps if you're willing to? I'm usually told I have a lot of No. Okay. I find when I have the relaxation, go through a relaxation. 
presentation, and I reach a point of joyfulness, the pain, physical pain actually, like migraine, subsides. And I found the second one is mental activity and concentration on a problem. Yeah. Is that, you're shaking your head. Yeah, the, so in that case, so two ways. One is joy uh, is both calming down the anterior cingulate cortex and saying, it's okay, it's okay. The other nice thing is that, and I actually have a slide of this too, that the, um, physic, the, the natural endorphins in the body, the body has a natural, as a system for you know, sedating in effect or anesthetizing pain. These are um, neurotransmitter systems, neurochemical systems called the endorphins. Recent studies have shown that feeling loved or um, other positive experiences also can activate these um, neurochemical systems and get releases of natural opioids like endorphins. So I suspect that when a person is experiencing joy, it has that kind of endorphin release or other natural opioid um, you know, pleasure chemical, if you will, release in the brain. The other method is, of course, distraction. Um, one of the nice examples given in uh, the, the paper or essay, which I encourage you to look at if you do have an interest in pain in Buddha Dharma, is a nice summary, was a practitioner who had, I think for some reason, a lot of pain on the right side of her body. It was hard to sleep. She had maybe arthritis on the right side or something like that. So she, with steadiness of mind, right, the samadhi pillar of practice, there are many reasons for steadiness of mind. She could put her attention, she just sank her attention into the left side of her body, the body sensations on the left side, and became absorbed in them, almost as a deep concentration shamatha practice, absorbed in the sensations on the left side of her body, and that enabled her to fall asleep. That's great. The larger point here, there are two points here. One point is that um, it really is true that mental activity changes neural activity and over time, therefore, changes neural structure. We really do make these changes. The brain is the learning organ in the body. The other thing that's true, or an important point, is, is the idea of resourcefulness. The idea of trying different things and finding the things that work for oneself. It's interesting just to use the Buddha as an example. Here's this person who by all accounts, including contemporary accounts, people of the time, said was completely enlightened, completely enlightened. So he got it, right? And then he taught for about 40 years. Now he said, I teach just one thing, suffering in its end. Okay, but he also taught about a thousand different ways to end suffering. If there was only one right way to end suffering, he would have stopped with that one. All right? But as he taught, he proposed in a very resourceful way many different practices for many different types of people, for many different types of situations. And that is um, how I think it's really okay to be ourselves and to be active for our own well-being, which itself carries a deep message, which I'll talk a little bit more later about as well, a deep message that we are on our own side, that we actually matter, and that we're for ourselves, which itself adds value. Oh, by the way, it's good to turn off your cell phone. <laughs> if that thought has not already occurred to you, this would be a good moment to really make sure it's off. I actually, as a therapist, I've had clients come in and their cell phone will start ringing and I'll go, Ah, but the third time I'll really go, ah, 
And they'll say, I don't know how to turn it off. <laughs> I'm like, you don't know how to turn it off? Okay, well, take out the battery if nothing else. That'll definitely kill the darn thing. Okay, so a couple more and then I'm going to keep moving. Some specific comments or questions about the, th the five suggestions. Usually people bring up the one about safety as a hard one. Anybody have some difficulty with that or some stuff going on about that? Safety? Feeling safer? Yeah? No? Well, yeah? Well, I don't know. Oppressed. And this annoys me. Yeah. Which doesn't help. But, uh, and then it goes up, comes back. When I realize it's gone, then it comes back. <laughs> and, but if I just uh, breathe normally, not too deep, it's okay. But as soon as I go deep, I don't know if this is being well, so the question or the comment was about when she does um, deep breathing, sort of deliberately breathes deeply, she feels oppressed, right? It's like something is against you or on you or something like that, a burden maybe. It's not pleasant, in other words. And what I would say to that is that it could be that uh, there's an association to deep breathing and emotion or experiences in life. When people do meditation, usually they stop controlling the breathing. And so it's not pranayama. It's not a yoga technique. We're not trying to breathe deeply. And actually, a, a, a sign that's used of how long people have been practicing that's quite reliable is how quickly their breathing becomes shallow and their heart rate slows. In other words, how quickly they get a physiological, you know, a quieting. So letting oneself relax letting the breathing just do what it does on its own. Most of the time we don't exercise conscious control over breathing. Just letting the body breathe on, on its own is natural. As a little detail, a practice that I've done from time to time that I invite you to if you want, is to give up breathing at all until the body takes over. That itself is a great practice of surrender and not self. The body will breathe. The body will breathe, but give up breathing. And that right there is a deep kind of letting go. So. Um, in terms of safety, why don't I go through the reasons for each of these five suggestions and what was maybe happening in the brain. The first one, setting an intention, the top-down part involves the prefrontal cortex, the part right behind the forehead, that's important. But I deliberately put in the other part, bottom-up intention, because a lot of research is showing these days that something called embodied cognition. In other words, learning that's in the body that starts down in the sensory motor systems is fundamental to thinking. So if we put ourselves into the feeling of the positive intentions we want, for example, by imagining being someone, channeling the Buddha or a teacher or sitting like a Buddha, let's say, that supports the realization of our intention. As a little example of that, I'm, I'm amused by this study that was done in Germany um, I have another study in Japan. I don't know why the origin of the country seems so perfect somehow, but you'll say for yourself. So they did this study, and they had people hold a pencil in one of two ways. One way, I think they did it in their teeth like this, and it forced their face to grin. You know, it was a weird grin, but, you know, they were grinning. And then there was another way they held it where they forced them to hold it in their forehead or something, or I don't know, and it made them frown, like, 
Okay, that's what they did. And then, either grinning or frowning, they had them look at cartoons on the one hand, or sad pictures on the other hand, and then evaluate how funny was the cartoon and how sad was the picture. And they found that the people who were grinning rated the cartoon funnier and the picture not so sad. And the people that were made to frown, just their face was frowning, rated the cartoon not so funny and the picture much sadder. Isn't that interesting? Just the action itself primes you know, or supports or, or encourages a certain stance towards something. And as I said last night, for example, when I'm in a situation where my natural inclination is to pull back, you know, like to get out of the conversation, like my wife's mad at me or something, I don't know what, you know, sure, whatever, fine, uh, yeah, okay, really, yeah, it's really okay. Uh, you know, as soon as you do that, you're, you're in trouble for about a lot of reasons. The alternative is to sit up and to lean forward a little, which helps keep attention in the conversation. Those are examples of, you know, embodied intention. Yeah? Um, I can't stop myself from asking this question, although it may be silly. Uh, I'm wondering about the strength of intention, because I'm inclined to say to myself, okay, five minutes, one hour, uh, I will try to be mindful. Now, is that less strong than to, because I, I don't want to lie to myself? Is that less strong than to say, I will be mindful? Okay, so the question is, what's um, the impact of uh, the way we say things to ourselves? And for example, do we say, I will try to be mindful of every breath? or I will be mindful of every breath. And um, there's a little bit about this that I think the word try has gotten a bad rap, partly related to um, some uh, human potential trainings done by Werner Erhard and others in the 70s where trying was seen as bad, which then actually showed up in the Star Wars movies. If you remember Yoda saying, don't try, Luke, do or something, right? Now, okay, so yes, we can get, we can think of trying as a kind of just making a gesture that is doomed from the get-go. All right, on the other hand, there's a place for making sincere effort that we will not always succeed at. And to say, I'm gonna go into this and do the best I can. I'm a rock climber, I've done a lot of rock climbing, and I'll look at things that are at the upper limit of my ability, and I will say, I am gonna try to climb that. And I really am. And some of the time I'm going to succeed and some of the time I'm going to fail. But it's not, but if I go and say, I will climb it. At a certain level I know that's stupid. I will fly. <laughs> you know, dumb. So, interestingly, I read a recent study that said that if people, um, before they took a test, um, if they just simply said to themselves two different ways of, um, they, they were um, set up to say two different things in their mind one group, from two groups. One group said, I will understand this, okay? The other group was set up to say in their mind, will I understand this? The second group sounds a little bit more like the trying group, okay? They actually did better because somehow creating a question, an interrogative in their mind primed an inquiry, primed an investigative attitude when they did the test. So I think, you know, we can get a little, not that you are at all, but I'm thinking about Yoda a little bit, which means George Lucas who took the S training, um, as did I. 
Anyway, um, we can get a little doctrinaire about methods, which again I think has a great teaching to us all to have what the Buddha had, a certain flexibility, a certain nimbleness, and a certain empiricism, fundamentally, what works, okay? And so out of all that, I think that if you establish at the beginning of each breath, for example, you regenerate the intention. That's powerful. I think also this embodied intention aspect is a great way to deal with this question because if you have a feeling in your body of the success, it, it automatically activates that and inclines you in that direction. In part because when we rehearse things in our mind, neurons that fire together wire together even if it's only in our imagination. That's why, for example, skiers or Olympic athletes who imagine skiing a difficult slope well do better than those who don't. They actually did a study on people who were experienced pianists playing the piano. And they had them, um, so they gave them a difficult piece that involved some sort of specific finger motion. Let's say left hand, the two little, the two less fingers on the left hand, okay? Then they separated these pianists, these experienced pianists, into two groups. One group played the piece for 10 or 20 minutes a day for, let's say, four weeks, roughly. Okay? They just they actually played it. Doo -doo -doo -doo. The other group just imagined playing it for 10 or 20 minutes a day. Okay? So everything's the same, except one group does it, one group imagines it. The group that played it actually at the end of the period of doing this had measurably thicker neural structures in the motor the strips that controlled those special motions, whatever they were. Okay? That itself is pretty amazing. That actually just practicing something could build neural structure in a month or so. The really amazing thing was that the people who just imagined it got about as much build out in neural structure as well. Mental activity alone changes neural structure. So that's why I think the embodied intention is a very powerful way to help ourselves. Okay? I better keep doing the other four if it's okay. Um, the second one about relaxing. Remember we talked about, or I talked about how the inner monkey, you know, the monkey mind is scared and nervous, you know, it's like yesterday I talked about paper tiger paranoia and all that looking around. It's really hard to meditate when those, um, that kind of scanning is going on and that scanning increases when we're not relaxed because we have a system in the, in the nervous system that connects to the hormones that's the sympathetic nervous system. It's the fight or flight stress response nervous system. And when that nervous system is activated, it makes us especially distractible because when we feel revved up, that's a signal in terms of the ancient circuits of the body to look out. Because if you're revved up, there's probably a good reason for it. See what I mean? To be revved up and simultaneously, yeah, whatever, doesn't make sense. You know, so the body um, has these layers of programming or systems that have developed in evolution. And those systems are not perfect. They're here because they work. They passed on genes, right? So if people are revved, if organisms, animals, or animal ancestors are revved up and not being, and not really looking around a lot, you know, they probably get eaten. But the ones who are revved up and look around a lot, they did better. So what we have to do 
is to calm down that sympathetic nervous system arousal for steadiness of mind, which I think is a very important thing in today's society because we live in a culture that continually generates a sympathetic activation just as a way of life. There's a wonderful book on stress called Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And it makes the point that in the wild, and this was probably true for our own ancestors, not just the four-legged ones, you know, the zebras, that in the wild, uh, the body evolved for short bursts of acute stress, all right? Lion jumps out of the bushes, whoosh, zebra runs away. The whole thing is resolved very quickly, one way or another, <laughs> right? And the zebra gets away, and it just goes back to relaxing, and all the other zebras relax, or the lion gets his lunch, okay? So one way or another it gets resolved. We did not evolve for the current modern condition of low-grade chronic stress, which has many serious consequences for both physical and mental health. One of the most important things we can do is to get much better and quicker at an automatic cooling, calming response. It's interesting how many metaphors the Buddha used, for example, that have to do with cooling, cooling the fires, you know, the, the overheated system. And you can kind of feel it in your body when you're overheated, right? So one of the things that's a great preliminary practice meditation is to cool the fires, to calm the body down. One thing I, at this point, am fairly automatic about is when something comes at me that is alarming or startling, you know, makes me either afraid or irritated, let's say, very quickly, my, here's my first aid trick, you know, pause, um, self-compassion, get on my own side, make a plan. All right, that's my big four, right? And as part of that, the pausing part for me a lot has to do with just mounting a, a calming. Yes, there are times for being excited, you know, both happy excitement, and there are times for also frightened excitement, okay? But on the whole, this chronic activation is not good for us. So that's the second method of relaxing. The reason I gave you the two suggestions, one, long exhalation, and two, relaxing the tongue, is both are involved with the parasympathetic nervous system, which calms down the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight nervous system. The two are connected like a seesaw. So when one goes up, whoop, pushes the other one down. So if you get sympathetic nervous system arousal, it pushes down the parasympathetic. If you activate the parasympathetic wing, it pushes down the sympathetic wing. The parasympathetic nervous system controls exhaling. So the heart rate slows down a little bit as we exhale. Sympathetic nervous system controls inhaling. Heart rate speeds up a little if we inhale. So if we do three to 10 long exhalations, that gets a lot of parasympathetic activation going, which helps calm us down. It's, you know, for example, if, if you're on the zero to 10 upset scale, something has happened and you're at a seven, or your friend is, or a child, if, who will put up with your advice, let's say, um, and you ask that person or you yourself do three to 10 long exhalations, usually that needle's gonna come from a seven to a three, at least, all right. This other suggestion I had was the tongue. In contrast to the fight or flight sympathetic nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system is the uh, rest and digest system because it restores equilibrium. Well, digest. The parasympathetic system has lots and lots of fibers in the mouth and the tongue. So if you relax the tongue, 
It's a nice way to relax. Okay, just moving along here then. Third suggestion, feeling safer. Because we evolved to be frightened, we evolved to be paranoid, to be very threat reactive, um, we tend to have a background of anxiety most of the time. Try to walk across a room that you know is absolutely safe with not one molecule of anxiety. It's actually not that easy to do it, you know, let alone walk down a city street or through a mall or even across your living room. So working with anxiety is a, is a good practice in general. Um, to bring attention in from out here to in here in a mindfulness practice like meditation, it really helps to calm anxiety, to feel less guarded, to feel less braced against life, less that we need to keep the, the sentinels you know, up on the high towers looking for dragons and barbarians coming our way, and to bring them in for inner work. Now for some people, feeling safer makes them nervous because it's when you feel safe that you lower your guard and wow, that's when they really get you. All right? That's why uh, you know, it's useful to take that into account and adapt these suggestions if that's, if that's true for you. On the other hand, most people truly can benefit from feeling as safe as they reasonably can. And there are different little things a person can do in their mind to feel safer, like recognize that you're in a protected setting, not a war zone, that you're among generally good people, um, that you also have lots of resources inside yourself to deal with what comes to you. One of the, when people talk about not feeling safe or not feeling trusting, my experience, usually they think about it as having to do with the nature of the world out there. But actually it's very interesting that mistrust of the world often boils down to mistrust of oneself. Not feeling that I have enough resources or strengths to deal with what, what comes. But actually you probably do because, you know, the paper tiger paranoia makes us chronically overestimate, it makes us, it leads us to make three mistakes all the time as it's a, because that's a good strategy to keep us alive in the wild, our ancestors alive in the wild so they could pass on the, their genes. So we're continually, naturally making three mistakes, overestimating threats, underestimating opportunities, and underestimating resources. Now occasionally we, we don't make that mistake and we actually underestimate the real tigers in the bushes. That's a problem. It's important to pay attention to the real tigers in the bushes. All right. But generally speaking, we're much more likely to make those three mistakes than to go in the other direction. And one of them is to underestimate our own resources. That's why I think putting in a correction factor there is very useful. It, would, it both promotes well-being because it doesn't feel good to be afraid. It's so interesting. I had a Christian um, minister actually send me an email who had heard a talk I gave or something about fear. And he said, Rick, it's really interesting that throughout the Bible, uh, a statement is attributed to God again and again. You know, what is that statement? Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Be not afraid. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I'd like to share something about that. Uh, I recently went to Prince Edward Island by myself. It was a long drive, 16 hours. I was by myself alone there. And, uh, I'm, I'm not afraid at all. I'm the contrary, the very safe, self-confident and everything. But what it helps me all the time, and I would like to share with the others, is that I have found my mission in life. So I said, well, nothing is going to happen to me. I have a mission, and it's kind of unprotected because I have to do something for the people. That's great. Thank you. So it helps me very much in my mind. 
Great. She had a wonderful method there, and methods are great. So method being um, having a sense of mission or purpose, if you will, intention, uh, that one is carried by and protected by. Sure, that's really great. great. Thank you. Oh, yeah? And then I'll keep going. Very related to, to that discussion about the level of it. I'm, I'm a professor here at Concordia University of Montreal, and I teach a subject called drama therapy. Uh, and the essential vehicle of the therapy is called the safe play space. So every year I teach just to the first two year graduate students, and it, right, a little bit after 9 11, a student just got up and said, There is no such thing as a safe place in the world. And I couldn't really answer that. So you're throwing that hot potato to me, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Got it. You're up there to answer. Yeah, that. no, that's good. That's good. I just wanted to name what was really happening here. No, that's good. Thank you. No, it's a great question. And um, I remember that day vividly well. Um, and <clears throat> the Buddha taught there's no ultimate safety from suffering, and in particular from old age, disease, and death. So that's why I began by saying there's no perfect safety in this life. And part of what practice is, is to come to peace with um, forms of unsafety on the one hand. On the other, and, it's, and it literally is true. It, it goes back to an interesting book title from Alan Watts a long time ago, The Wisdom of Insecurity, where he talks about embracing uncertainty. The truth is, at a, even in a fundamental sense, without getting all philosophical about it, it's remarkable, isn't it, that everything always exists now, and it's always ending, and we have no guarantee, guarantee whatsoever that, the present, that, the, that any moment will come next, in a sense. There's a fundamental uncertainty. I have friends who are in a couple. And every day when they part company in the morning, like one goes off to work here and one goes off to work there, they'll say to each other like people do, see ya or bye, have a good, you know, see ya sweetie, something. But they'll, in addition to doing that ordinary thing, they'll look at each other, you know, for about a second. And they each know that each one is thinking, I truly may never see you again. And I just want to feel it and give my love to you right now and have you know that. And I know that you know that I know that you know that I know that or something, you know? Like, wow, right there, we don't know. We don't know. It's not just, um, there are many levels of not knowing. And I'm not trying to equate my own degree of not knowing as a middle class American with credit cards and bank accounts and, you know, and a fairly good police department nearby. I'm not trying to equate my lack, my uncertainty with someone in downtown Baghdad or Kabul or in Pakistan right now, right? I'm not equating that. But I am saying that, sure, there, is a, there are unsafeties. On the other hand, because of paper tiger paranoia, which then gets very manipulated, as I know, I, I sense that you know uh, politically, um, the truth is very often we overestimate how unsafe we are. I think my living room is a very safe place. Yes, any moment a meteorite could come crashing through. 
in the book, in the Guinness Book of World Records, they have pictures actually of meteorites crashing through houses in Arkansas and America, about the size of a baseball, just landed there. Could have killed somebody. You never know. But it, I feel it's very safe, basically. I'm not afraid of Al Qaeda in my living room. You know, San Rafael is a very low likelihood target. You know, and I think it's really important to appreciate those distinctions. And I think oftentimes we get caught up in feeling, as I said last night, that it's always threat level orange when it's really not. The other thing is to quote Viktor Frankl from Auschwitz, a famous quotation. He was an Auschwitz survivor. To paraphrase him, he said, even in what could be considered the, the most dangerous place in the world, you know, concentration camp in World War II, right? He said, even in that place, there were people who uh, went around and made the choice to give to others maybe a scrap of bread or a smile. And they demonstrated that most fundamental of human freedoms to choose our own way, regardless of the safety or lack thereof of our circumstances. So I think as well, whatever um, our circumstances are, we can have fundamental choices inside our own mind with how we relate to them and, and uh, in our own mind, we can find a certain safety. Which goes to the point that for most people, the most dangerous thing in the world for them is their own mind. Because they sleep with the enemy every night <laughs> upstairs, right? It's an affliction. You know, the, the things that most threaten us, the things that most make us suffer, the things that most ruin our lives are usually not out there. But day to day, it's what's in here. So us taking a stand for ourselves. if we're going to take up arms against our oppressors, where are most oppressors located? Inside our own head. It's the internalized oppressors right, of various kinds. That does not mean not dealing with external oppressors, but it means as well paying attention to where the most powerful ones tend to live. And the last thing also I'll just say is that the more that a person has a certain fundamental um, fearlessness, if you will. They're not driven by fear. Fear arises, but it does not control them. The more that a person takes a stand for a fundamental fearlessness, in my own view, politically, at a time when there's so many fear messages that are being produced in large part according to the ancient script of elites making the populace afraid. Because then they'll put up with a lot of mistreatment to get a strong father figure to protect them, whatever the gender of that father figure is. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's an act of internal liberation that has political consequences to take a stand you know, for fearlessness. I'm tired of going to the airport and seeing threat level orange. It's such a load of bunk. You know, the odds of any bad event on my flight are vanishingly small. I'm tired of people who make us feel afraid. They're not always on the news. Sometimes they're sitting across the dinner table. Sometimes they are inside our heads because they're the ones who raised us. Often they have good intentions. You know, The trick is to see through the good intentions or see past the good intentions to the fact that I don't need right now to feel that afraid. The last two suggestions, and then I really have to keep moving. All right. Um, opening up to happiness or well-being. It's not that we're manipulating ourselves. We're not forcing something. 
And it's not that we're against sorrow or fear or anger or shame, which are the four major groups of the negative emotions, fear, anger, sadness, and shame. Um, it's not that we're against those things, but that because we're on our own side and because we recognize that it's skillful means, we want to cultivate happiness. We want to cultivate well-being. Now, in particular, in ways that are quite interesting, neurologically, which I'll explain, fairly high levels of steady well-being or happiness really promote meditative depth and absorption. And they do this through a very interesting neurological mechanism that controls attention. So if you're trying to concentrate on something, let's say the sensations of breathing or a mantra or an idea, or you're trying to investigate something about yourself, like you're trying to, or maybe about everything, like impermanence, you're really trying to pay attention to things ending and ending and ending, endlessly ending, all right? Um, the only thing that doesn't end is impermanence. You know, in effect, okay. So I always thought it was very funny and I, I kept waiting for the Buddha to make a joke like that. You know, impermanence is permanent, but he never did. But anyway, so I am. Maybe not a very good joke, but anyway. So whatever it is you're trying to pay attention to, steady the mind, whatever the object of concentration is, that means that you're holding it in working memory. Working memory is a little bit like a mental chalkboard. It's the RAM, random access memory like in a computer, except in the brain. So we're trying to keep that object of attention in working memory. The way working memory works is that it has a kind of gate, all right, that lets information in, and when the gate closes, that information stays in working memory. So if we want to stay attentive to our breath, we want to keep the gate closed to working memory, right? How does that gate work? It works in a very simple but powerful way in the brain. So what keeps the gate closed is steady dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter, it's a neurochemical. It's very involved in tracking rewards. So when the rewards are steadily coming, that keeps the gate to working memory closed, which makes sense. So consider a monkey in a tree, all right, eating bananas. As long as there are plenty of bananas in this tree, the rewards keep coming and the gate stays closed and the monkey doesn't think about other things, like other trees. On the other hand, if the amount of bananas in this tree start to diminish and decrease, the rewards decrease, and the monkey, uh, the gate opens, and the monkey is now more aware of other, other trees that have other bananas, okay? Alternately, this is very interesting, when dopamine spikes, that also pops open the gate. So if a cute other monkey swings into a branch nearby, whoa, new opportunity, forget the bananas, right? <laughs> What's your sign or whatever the monkeys did? Woohoo! I don't know, something like that, right? Dopamine spikes, the gate opens, and then new information can come in. That's a very ingenious, simple mechanism that's driven by dopamine that makes a lot of sense. Well, if you're feeling good, if you're having positive emotion, you're getting dopamine. So that helps keep the gate closed. And also, if you have high levels of dopamine, dopamine is at the top of its range. So you can't get a spike. That keeps the gate closed as well. And that's why I think, among other reasons, two of the five jhana factors, two of the five factors in Buddhism for meditative concentration are involve very high levels of positive emotion. 
rapture or bliss and joy. Isn't that interesting? Why in the world would the Buddha, who's a great technician in a sense, um, encourage people to feel very high levels of bliss in the body and great levels of happiness as factors for meditative absorption? And he wasn't the only one. He probably he lived in a very strong, deep yogic tradition. He may well have gotten those methods from others as well, who realized that high, steady uh, levels of happiness help promote concentration. It's because it keeps the gate closed to working memory. Isn't that kind of cool? So happiness is skillful means. It also rewards us because what promotes the formation of synapses in the brain is dopamine and norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is another neurotransmitter and hormone that's um, also released when we're alarmed, but it's a general orienting neurotransmitter. It essentially says to the brain, pay attention to this. Well, that promotes learning. We want to we learn about what we're paying attention to. So if you want to really have the lessons of life stick to you, it helps to associate them with positive emotion and a basic sense of arousal and alertness. It's like a good school teacher knows. You know, if you want to teach long division to a bunch of fourth graders or whatever, uh, and they're sort of half asleep and kind of depressed and you know, worried, they're not going to learn very well. But if they have moderate levels of activation, they're not going crazy, they're not jumping off the walls, right? Bouncing off the walls, and they're kind of happy, they're more likely to remember what they're learning. So again, if you want to help yourself um, learn these good lessons through practices of one kind or another, associating them to positive emotion is very skillful. Yeah, in the back. Yeah, that's a great question. So let's suppose that you're experiencing some negative emotion, not just pragmatically, like you're, you're angry about something, okay? Um, I think that it's important to feel it for an appropriate amount of time. In many ways, I think the greatest Dharma story of all time is Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? Because it's the middle way. It's not too hot, not too cold. Not too tall, not too short, right? Not too hard, not too soft. It's that middle place. We usually have an intuition of when we've done the first phase long enough. We've been with the anger long enough. We've held it in big, spacious mindfulness. Okay. First, it can help to be with the anger to have a basic level of well-being. If we're already feeling miserable, it's really hard to just be with it. So right there. The well-being is like the big bucket of water in which the big spoon of salt has, of anger, let's say, has landed first. Second, when we're letting go of it, in, we're doing that phase, letting go, we're working with it skillfully, we're doing wise effort with it. It can often help to, in a way that doesn't repress what we're letting go of, but it can help to bring in positive emotion. For example, the Buddha talked about loving-kindness as the antidote to anger. And he encouraged people as practice that when you're angry, you know, after you've been mindful about it long enough, shift, if you can, into kindness and, and compassion as best you can find that. What I would say to that is a good place to start, particularly if you just can't flip a switch. You know, most of us can't. Someone wrongs us, we're angry at them, to just flip into loving kindness you know, that takes a very mature level of practice. There are people who can do that. 
There's a story that Dalai Lama tells of a monk who was uh, imprisoned in Tibet by the Chinese government for uh, many, many years and routinely tortured. And when he finally was released and he was telling the Dalai Lama some of the awful things that had been done to him, the Dalai Lama just said, you know, essentially, oh my gosh, um, were you ever afraid for your life? And the monk said, well, the only time I was really afraid for my life was when I thought I might be losing my loving kindness for my jailers. Wow. You know, that's how he defined his, his true life. So some people can do it. But for moi, <laughs> lesser mortals, <laughs> you know, sometimes it helps to prime the circuits by first calling up the felt sense of being cared about by other people, by being joined with others who have compassion for us. In other words, we start by priming the pump, by bringing to mind the sense of being cared about, liked, belong, you know, connected with others that we belong with, let's say. And that can then help us feel enough of our cup being full that we can start to tip into you know, wishing well to the other people. And then in the afternoon especially, I really, you know, I'm interested in getting into the nitty-gritty of bad relationship situations and really talk very practically about stuff to do and things that work neurologically and also practically, in my experience at least. So then to finish up, okay, so the last method. Remember that bird's eye view, the panoramic view? Um, it's interesting, and I don't have the slides here for this, but they're on my website. Studies have shown that when people are in a conventional way of thinking, like they're problem solving or they're, you know, they have a little mini movie running in the simulator, if you will, in the mind, that has often a lot of sense of self in it. Me, I, you know, like, why are you not respecting me more? Why don't you love me more? Oh, I did such a bad thing that day. Whatever, you know, that normal way of thinking, right? When we're in that normal way of thinking, we activate circuits in the middle of the brain, typically. Midline circuits, front to back. Right? But when we open out into spacious mindfulness, we activate circuits on the sides of the brain, especially in the right-hand side of the brain, which is specialized for most people, especially right-handed people. The right hemisphere of the brain is specialized for global gestalt spacious awareness, if you will, or perce perceiving. So it's not an accident that the circuits we activate when we're in this sort of open, spacious state of mind are on the right-hand side of the brain in particular. All right? Now people who, without any training, if you ask them to, instead of doing this kind of thinking about, let's say, whether some words apply to them, if you just ask them to relax and open up and be simply aware of, simply witness the, you know, what flows through the mind, they can do that. They can activate the circuits on the side of the brain for about 10 seconds. And then they experience what most of us have experienced one time or another in meditating. The midline circuits light up, they take control again, and the person's back in the ordinary kind of rambling, ruminating state of consciousness. But this study also showed that with training, in just eight weeks of some kind of basic mindfulness training, people could sustain the activation of the right-sided circuits, the lateral circuits, which was associated with more consistent mindfulness. And they began to get more right-sided activation at will, just through some very simple trainings. 
this idea of these two circuits is actually a very powerful one and something that I've been working on because it has to do in a way with two modes of being. One, for example, is very analytic. The other is very holistic, right? One is full of self. The other has little sense of self. One is, tends to be quite conceptual and abstract. The other is very immediate and concrete. One tends to be focused on the future or the past. The other, the present. What does that sound like? That sounds like a very familiar set of attributes that are kind of paired together in terms of two modes of being. And it's interesting that these two modes are very reliably associated with two networks in the brain. And really interesting that with practice, you can strengthen and, and you can stimulate and therefore strengthen the neural circuits of this open, this sort of beingness mode. This is more like to use a word that's two words that are sim overly simplistic, but lateral network is being, midline is doing. Both are important, but we live in a culture and we educate usually our kids in a deep, deep stimulation and therefore strengthening of midline circuitry. This has a lot of implications if you think about it socially. I don't want to get too far into this, but the great thing is with practice, we can activate those lateral circuits. And some of the ways to do it are through a bird's eye view, a panoramic awareness. There also, this is the method I used with you here. The other, a few other methods are things like surprise. Humor lights up right-sided circuits, lateral circuits. Humor lights it up because humor is very much usually about surprise, okay? Um, not knowing, like not feeling the need to connect thoughts together. It's interesting that Sokni Rinpoche, who's a great Tibetan teacher, said, um, it's really okay to have thoughts. The problem is not thoughts per se. The problem is that we try to glue them together. When we relax and don't need what's moving through the mind to be meaningful, we don't need it to make sense. We can allow ourselves to just not know that helps activate those lateral circuits, especially on the right side. Okay? So those are five methods. Yeah? Excuse me, just the, the heading. What was the fifth step? Oh, it was basically, I called it panoramic awareness. You know, I could have also proposed that you take an attitude of not knowing. But that's a little more abstract and harder. But the bird's eye view idea, you know, that awareness is a giant sky and clouds of thought or sensation or cell phone ringing, whatever, and irritation at cell phone ringing, whatever, and then wishing Rick would tell them, please turn yourself off, whatever. Whatever it is, those are just clouds moving through the vast open sky of mind. Those are ways that bird to activate that sense of the bird's eye view. Okay. As someone, I have a few clients. I'm trying to train their midline circuits. They need more doing the circuits. They got to learn how to balance their checkbook, you know, or come to appointments less than an hour late, things like that. But for most people, me included, oh my gosh, way too much training. This is like a midline hegemony, a kind of dictatorship, you know, of the midline. And it's so important to be able to increasingly open out into other modes of, of being as appropriate. Okay, yeah. Sure. Yeah. 
So question about depression um, and doing these practices. It's a great question, and I, I don't know if he's here today. Uh, after last night, uh, a, a young doctor in training asked about this, and I don't see him. Okay. First of all, there's a spectrum of depression, all right? From uh, mild dysphoria, dysthymic disorder, it's called, right? Where, and I don't mean, I mean, you still feel crummy. And oftentimes people, it's almost the new way of life to just feel blanketed, right? And you get used to it. It's when it goes away that you realize that you have felt almost smothered by this blanket, you know, that just robs you of happiness. It's dreadful. I've known, I've had family members who are depressed and, you know, it's not a good thing. As a therapist, I'd rather have a client who's angry than a client who's depressed. Because if you're depressed, there's often not the energy, if you will, to do something. So there's a spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, it's essentially, I'd kill myself if I could get out of bed. You know, it's the whole other end of the spectrum. My personal experience is that people more at the severe end of the spectrum, well-meaning suggestions and methods like I'm, we're exploring in this workshop today are actually harmful. They're annoying. They're upsetting because you say to someone, gee, why don't you call to mind something you're grateful for? Like, they're, they're angry because they can't. You know, it just, adds, it just adds insult to injury. So I've, I've learned with practice to not go there. Often there, you're just, you're just trying to ride out the storm, stay alive, get through, rewrite the body, rewrite the brain, do what you can, you know, and so forth. On the other hand, for more of the mid-range of depression, and certainly at the lighter end of more dysthymic disorder, I think there's a lot of research that methods like these are actually quite effective. Sometimes what you're dealing with in using them is you're dealing with the obstruction to using them, which is the first thing that comes up. For example, a person um, might have a sense of futility about doing anything to help their mood. And so then you're dealing with that sense of futility first, working with that, and then you can get to the method itself. That's often what happens in the rhythm, right? You think there's a skillful means, something that might help. You think to yourself, oh, I should try this. And then what arises first is the obstruction. Like, for example, oh, I'll pay attention to my breath for five minutes in the row. You know, that's the obstruction. So you practice with the obstruction, and then you get back to the original intention. Both are really useful. It is literally a kind of, you know, win-win. Either way is productive. So let's suppose you're through the obstructions, and now you're actually working with, a, you know, a depressed mood or a depressive mood. What are some ways to do that? I think, first of all, interrupting negative rumination is, has a lot of research behind it, that people who are depressed tend to, the midline activation, the, the voice in the head, the yammering, tends to be quite negative. So an effective method is to help people step out of that, well, popping out into those lateral networks with the bird's eye view, or just giving yourself permission for five minutes to not have anything make any sense in your head, you know, is blessed relief, for example. Another, I think, is to start with, if you're in the mid-range of depression or, the, or the, the, the milder end of the spectrum, there's usually something that can move the needle. When you're at the severe end, nothing moves the needle. It's just locked on despair, unfortunately. But if you're more in the mid-range, there's usually something. It can often be something like a pet or a plant. A related finding, I think, is that a, a very effective way to extend the lifespan for older people in an old folks' home is to give them a tomato plant. Literally, just giving them a tomato plant for their own. 
that they would, it made them live longer. They got interested, they had something to talk about, they had a stress benefit, it gave them a way to connect, they wanted to see the, the thing get bigger, you know, the tomato grow, whatever, just a tomato plant. And that's an, an example of how a little pleasure or a little sense of well-being. Okay. Oh, okay. That's good. Whatever. Anyway, it, it really helped them. Okay, so I think finding that for them and then using these practices with them I think is really good. The other thing is very often depression is stressful and it's activating of the sympathetic nervous system. One of the pernicious effects of stress um, um, is that it wears on a part of the brain called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is involved in making memories. All right, especially for context and especially visual spatial memories. One of the things the hippocampus does as well is it controls the amygdala, which is the alarm bell in the brain. It kind of puts the brakes on the amygdala. And what the hippocampus also does is it inhibits cortisol production, which is a stress hormone. The problem is that if we're, that depression tends to activate the sympathetic nervous system because it's upsetting to be depressed. In effect, it's a second dart. We're, we're mad that we're sad, in effect, you know? Or we feel bad that we feel bad again. You know, dukkha, dukkha, suffering that I suffer, okay? Um, that kind of activation of the sympathetic nervous system triggers cortisol releases. And what cortisol does is it sensitizes the alarm bell of the amygdala so it rings louder and more readily. Also cortisol erodes and literally kills neurons in the hippocampus so that over time the hippocampus is less able to put the brakes on the alarm bell or the brakes on cortisol production. And studies have shown that people who are routinely stressed actually have shrinkage in the hippocampus, including people who are enormously depressed in part because they've been terribly treated, like people coming out of a prison where they've been tortured or something like that. And their hippocampus had shrunk even up to about a quarter. People always ask me at this point, can you grow the hippocampus back? The good news is that the hippocampus is one of the very few places in the brain that there's what's called neurogenesis, the birth of new neurons, maybe a thousand or so every day. And one of the things that promotes neurogenesis is exercise. So that's probably one of the pathways whereby exercise is very effective for mild to moderate depression. Uh, because among other things, it helps the brain relearn. Sometimes people talk about depression as a learning disorder, quote unquote, in that people have good experiences, but they're not learning from them somehow. They don't stick. It's not that they don't lack intelligence or they don't want to learn. It's that the brain isn't making those circuits. But if you can promote positive learning, for people at the more mild or moderate end of the depressive spectrum through, for example, things like exercise that promote neurogenesis, then you can help them kind of learn their way out of, in effect, that depressive pit. So that was a bit of a digression. I hope it was okay. But, you know, so many people will suffer or know someone who will suffer. We all know someone who has depression, don't we? And maybe it's the person we see in the mirror. Or we all know someone who's certainly vulnerable in that regard. That's why I think also, uh, mindf mindfulness-based prevention, uh, relapse prevention of depression is so important too because almost all depressive episodes end. That's something to tell someone who's depressed, who's severely depressed. 
you know, just about all depressive episodes end. That's why they're called episodes. We want to get you out of it as fast as possible because a depressive episode makes the brain more vulnerable for future depressive episodes. But on the other hand, once you're out of it, we want to prevent, really help you to not fall back into it. So if someone's out of depression, it's really important to build up the neural circuits of happiness and well-being. Okay. All right. How about the next slide, please? So now we're going to do, before lunch, okay, a primer on the brain with a practice no less, all in 32 minutes or something like that. Okay? Okay so far? All right, great. So this is the most conceptually difficult slide I've got. Um, I've been told that in French culture there's a strong element of philosophy. I'm going to try to stay far away from philosophy right here. Uh, when you're dealing with something complex that has a long philosophical and spiritual tradition like the mind, right, or consciousness, it's very useful to be very clear and I think simple in the definitions. So I want to explain what I mean here. And I did talk a bit about this uh, last night and I'll, I'll do this in a little more depth right now. By mind, my definition, which is a common one in neuroscience or psychology, Mind essentially is all the information flowing, the nervous system, flowing through the nervous system. Now at first that may sound kind of odd, but if you think about it, a computer hard drive is material and it contains immaterial information. Okay? A, a traffic signal, right? Red, yellow, and green. That, that traffic signal is material the wavelengths sent out, red, yellow, green, or material, but the meaning is immaterial. It could have been the other way. Red could mean go, right? Green could mean stop. See? Yeah. Same way right now. The patterning of the air with sound waves is material, but the information that's carried in English is immaterial. In much the same way, the nervous system, which is material, moves immaterial information around. Most of that information, most of the signals, most of the reductions of uncertainty, a nice definition of information is a difference that makes a difference. That's from Gregory Bateson from Information Theory, a difference that makes a difference. The nervous system is moving signals around that help regulate the body and at very high levels of complexity emerge into consciousness, most of those signals are forever outside of awareness. They're done at a level deep down in the architecture that does not make it up into consciousness. But it's still information. And when information flows through the nervous system, as I'll get into just momentarily, it shapes and patterns and changes the nervous system itself. This means that apart from a hypothetical transcendental X factor, God, spirit, the ground, the nameless, Buddha nature, let's say, apart from a hypothetical transcendental factor, the mind is what the brain does, to be simplistic. Now, in other words, the brain is the necessary condition for the mind, as I'm defining mind here. If you don't have a brain, you don't have mind. Now, the brain is um, also proximally sufficient. It's not just necessary, it's sufficient. And one reason I say proximally is an important point 
in that the brain is connected to the nervous system, which is connected to other bodily systems, which is connected to nature altogether and culture altogether, both here and now and across time, including very deep time, ancient time. So when I say the brain makes the mind, right, I, I mean brain is sort of a shorthand for that whole system, which is a very nice confirmation of the Buddhist teaching about interdependent origination, right, dependent arising. Everything is connected to everything else. Nothing has absolute self-existence. Right. Okay. All right. Uh, brain injury? Yeah, that's a question. What about brain injury? That will actually, I'll, I'm going to move right to that if I could. So how about I delay answering that by about 30 seconds. So next slide. I will wait. Okay. Next slide, please. Wait. Oh, we'll go back. Oh, yeah, good. Okay, that's great. So um, I want to say a, a few words here about the brain, how the brain actually works. These are some basic pieces of information. Um, three pounds, two, what's that, one and a half kilograms, ballpark, has about 1.1 trillion cells, 100 billion of which are neurons. A typical neuron makes about 5,000 connections called synapses with other neurons. Gives you about... Um, 500 trillion synapses in the brain. Typical neuron is firing 5 to 50 times a second. Much of that firing is noisy. It's just firing, okay? Because it's the modulation up or down, the speeding up or slowing down of the firing pattern that carries a signal. Still, even though a lot of that firing is noisy, there's so many synapses and there's so much information going through the brain that in the time it takes just to listen to that bell, probably about a quadrillion signals, bits of information, move through your brain right between the ears. Wow, kind of amazing, right? Next slide, please. This is a basic neuron, all right, our little buddy here. The receiving end is on the, right, on the left side as you face the, the slides. That's the cell body. The receiving end is, they're called dendrites. I think a little bit of the dendrites that reach out for signals coming at them from other transmitting neurons is a little bit like the finger of Adam and God in the Sistine Chapel, you know, kind of reaching to each other right across that little divide. A cell body is pretty fat, right? You could take about five standard neural cell bodies, neuronal cell bodies, and lay them side by side in the width of a single human hair, all right? But synapses are so tiny that you could about put about 5,000 of them side by side in the width of a human hair, all right? And so the summation moment to moment of all the signals from roughly 5,000 other neurons um, into our, our, the cell body here determines whether the neuron fires or not. If it does fire, it sends a signal that ripples down the long wire, the axon, that connects it to other neurons. Most axons are pretty short. Some of them are long. For example, if you just kind of wiggle your big toe right now, if you don't mind, wiggle your big toe, please. Um, the sensation of that traveled on an axon that was about three feet long from the end of your toe all the way up to the base of your spinal cord. So some of those axons are really long. And the insulation around the axon is called myelin, which helps speed the information along its way. All right, next slide, please. <coughs> So back to the amazing brain. 
something to really appreciate here uh, is the complexity of the brain. The brain is the most complex object known to science. The number of possible brain states, if you think about it, which is the upper limit of the amount of mind there can be in a brain, is the combination of 100 billion neurons either firing or not, right? Well, the, the number of possible combinations of 100 billion little switches, either on or off, okay, green light or red light, is 10 to the millionth power. That's the number of possible brain states. That number is one followed by a million zeros. And to put that number in perspective, the number of particles in the universe is estimated to be only 10 to the 80th power, only one followed by 80 zeros. Your brain, my brain right now, the human brain, as I said, is the most complex object known to science. More complex than a supernova, more complex than the American economy. <laughs> Very complex. Okay, which takes me to three facts about the brain, one of which will be relevant to head injury. So the next slide. So the three facts about your brain, all right? The first fact is that as the brain changes, the mind changes, for better or worse. On the left-hand side, we have Coca-Cola. So let's say we have some sugar, some water, uh, and some caffeine. That's going to change the state of the brain. On the right-hand side, we have a football player getting a concussion. That's a photograph of a guy who, walked, who had a concussion as a result of that hit. And when the brain is actually damaged, uh, either temporarily or in lasting ways, it changes the mind. The hopeful thing, which is not my focus today, but I'll, I will say in passing, is that there's more and more clarity about how to actually help rehabilitate the brain. There's probably an upper limit you know, to what can be actually done. But imagine an extreme condition, a little child who has such severe seizures, epileptic seizures, that the only solution is to literally take out half the cortex. If you take that child's, half that child's cortex out when she's really young, let's say it's a little girl, like a year old, and then meet her again when she's 20, you cannot tell that there was any damage. It takes sophisticated psychological tests to detect that half her brain, half her cortex was removed because the other half took over so many of those functions. So there is a lot of hopeful science here. Uh, again, as I said in the beginning, it's in early days, but it's still quite hopeful. All right? That takes us to the next slide, okay? which is as the mind changes, the brain changes. Now we're starting to get to some very interesting stuff. As the mind changes, the brain changes temporarily. That's what this slide is about. For example, if the flows of information through the nervous system alter, brain waves alter, which are signs of firing patterns of large neural assemblies. Also, there can be ebbs and flows of neurotransmitters. For example, when you were maybe in that practice thinking about something that made you happy, you know, I think that was the fourth suggestion, that's right, something that made you happy, you were probably getting more dopamine. There was more dopamine. Your mind was changing, but you were getting, um, also your brain was changing as well. In other words, I think of the mind and the brain as an interdependent system. Neither is causally primary. They both co-arise in interdependent kinds of ways. Next slide. So this is a picture of a temporary change in the brain due to someone doing a meditative practice. This is a Tibetan monk. I think it's Mathieu Ricard, who's a Frenchman. Um, in the scanner right now. 
And uh, the part of the brain that's in orange that's lit up there is the anterior frontal cingulate cortex. It looks like the rest of the brain has gone dark. I look at that, it looks like a campfire, the end of the world, you know, surrounded by darkness. No, that part of the brain is only about 2 to 3% more metabolically active. It's consuming more oxygen, which is a sign of busyness and activity. But it's a difference that makes a difference, right? That part of the brain is much more active because that's a part of the brain that's involved in the conscious, deliberate control of attention. So there he is in the MRI scanner trying to really focus on boundless compassion inside a machine that's banging away, you know, claustrophobically with stuff attached to it. Right? He needed to concentrate. And so he lit up that anterior cingulate cortex. And that's an example of mental activity changing neural activity. Yeah? Yeah, that was the one she, she said, but sure, other things were happening, of course. He was breathing, he was thinking probably about other things. He was doing compassion, boundless compassion. So he was, he was trying to pay attention to an object of attention. Both of those were surely active. But the thing that really stood out was concentration. And he's a very experienced practitioner. So he probably really lit up that part of the brain in a very strong way. But your point is good, and it'll go to another slide actually after the next one, um, which I'll go to next. Actually, one back, please. Back? Okay, great. So this is a slide of college students who are deeply in love being shown a picture of their sweetheart. And the part of the brain that's lighting up there is involved in the reward centers of the brain. It's called the caudate nucleus and other related systems. And the picture you're seeing there uh, is a shot that goes like this. Actually, can you go back one more? That picture is, in effect, the skull looking this way with a slice going like that. All right? Okay, forward now. Whereas this is a picture, the slice going this way. All right? So again, mental activity. This is a mental activity, someone who's deeply in love, seeing his or her sweetheart, and that mental activity corresponds to an under, or activates an underlying and, reason, and appropriate neural activity. Okay, next slide, please. Yeah. Drugs and alcohol do the same thing? Uh, so, question drugs and alcohol do the same thing? Um, cocaine. So, back one. Back one. Cocaine also lights up these circuits. Uh, so, yeah, that's an example of a, of a substance. You can, get, you can change the brain through mental activity, you can also change the brain through physical interventions. Maybe not cocaine, maybe uh, ibuprofen for a headache. You can change the brain, you know? Or, uh, you know, Zoloft or Prozac for antidepressants. You can also change the brain. Um, so. Yeah, alcohol as well. Uh, the bad thing about alcohol, I've got to tell you, and I hate to tell you because I like drinking myself, um, is that every day we lose about 10,000 brain cells. And that may seem like a lot, but when you start with, you know, 1.1 trillion, it means you only lose about 3 to 4% by the time you're 80. All right? The problem is alcohol works by depriving brain cells of oxygen. So one drink, which means a beer or a little glass of wine or a shot of liquor, also kills about 10,000 brain cells. The feeling of the alcoholic buzz we get is the feeling of brain cells drowning. 
I'm so sorry. People hate it when I say this. People then naturally, okay, I'll do it because it's the obvious next question. What about marijuana? So that's the obvious next question. Um, much less evidence for negative effects on the brain of marijuana. All right. It's interesting that something that's legal has many, many toxic effects on the body. That's why they call it intoxication because it's a toxin. All right. Marijuana, particularly very, very heavy chronic use, can affect motivational centers of the brain and memory centers of the brain. Uh, you know, but it doesn't seem to have at all the same research evidence for negative impacts on the brain. And it's also the case that in the fifth precept of Buddhism, the Buddha said, don't use substances that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. So, okay. What about caffeine? Caffeine, effects on the brain. Um, I don't think I've ever seen a study of any long-term damage of caffeine on the brain. Um, you know, it's interesting. I was told, and I find it amazing, but if it is actually true, the, of all the cash, uh, of all the um, commodities in the world, oil, uranium, iron, wheat, corn, uh, whatever, you know, maple syrup, you know, <laughs> and so forth, of all the possible commodities in the world, the one that has uh, the most um, dollar value is oil, petroleum. But the number two is coffee. Amazing to think about coffee beans. Apparently, are the number two commodity in the world in terms of the dollar value of the traffic. So, anyway, moving along to <laughs> the next slide. Thank you for reading my mind. Um, this is a great slide of Carmelite nuns in Montreal. This is a study done here, I believe, who were asked to recall, you know, the most moving and important spiritual experience of their life. So these are women, and what's interesting is I want to draw your attention to three parts of the brain that that mental activity activated, all right? One was our old friend, the anterior cingulate cortex, which is ACC. If you look at the upper left-hand uh, slide, you'll see LACC for left anterior cingulate cortex. The left or right-sidedness is probably not very relevant. The point is they were deliberately paying attention. That was a mental activity, and that created a corresponding neural activation. As well, You'll see, I think, in the top row, which is the only one I'll talk about, on the further to the right, CAUD, S-C-A-U-D, caudate nucleus, they also lit up the reward centers of the brain. Isn't that interesting? That these nuns who were recalling something, a spiritual experience, which probably had to do with some relationship with Christ, okay, um, was felt as so rewarding as rewarding as college students deeply in love or people winning the lottery, right? Which also lights up the caudate nucleus. <laughs> I'm not equating these. I'm just saying that they use, an, they use overlapping neural systems, okay? And the third thing that lit up for them is the insula, I-N-S or I-N-S-U-L-A, the insula. The insula is a part of the body, part of the brain rather, that does interoception, which is to say it tracks the internal sensing of the body. So for them, it was a very embodied experience. So isn't this interesting to contrast? We have a male Tibetan monk doing boundless, very kind of cosmic compassion who, who only can produce in terms of the primitive technology we have today. The only detectable signal in terms of a part of the brain that was lit up was the conscious control of attention. Whereas these female Catholics who were engaged in their form of deep spiritual activity 
lit up both deliberate control of attention as well as embodied pleasure. It's not making one practice better or worse than the other, but using the neurology to kind of unpack what to me are reasonable components of this experience. Okay? But again, the larger point, mental activity maps to neural activity. All right? So, Next. so yeah? isn't their experience, the men's experience, a little bit like a, a rapture? It's a, yeah. it's, it's a more of a full body... Yeah, which totally makes sense to me. Yeah, not better, not worse. There are Tibetan Buddhist practices that are very rapturous. You can have tantric practices, for example, very, very sensual in the mind and so forth. Um, but it is interesting just to appreciate some of the nuances here, that different mental activities map to underlying neural activity. All right, next slide. Great. This is a fun study out of Japan. Remember I said last night that it was just amusing to me, or maybe I said it today, didn't I? About smiling? Yeah, I did, about Germany. This is a Japanese study. These were uh, young men in Japan in some kind of a technical university where everyone is really driven and ambitious. They were new students, and they were, uh, the study uh, structure is to tell them that there was another young man in their class that they didn't know yet who was spectacularly successful in ways that were very close to their own you know, wishes and ambitions. Like this was a person who was just brilliant at science and engineering. And how did they feel? And what they reported was they felt bad, all right? They felt envy. And when they went in the scanner, what was revealed is that the physical pain circuits of the brain lit up when they experienced social pain. <clears throat> Mental activity, envy, activated neural substrates of both physical and social pain. On the other hand, in phase two of the study, when they were told that a humiliating and spectacular downfall had come to this person, this hated rival, <laughs> they were happy. They had lots of schadenfreude. They reported lots of schadenfreude. And the more the schadenfreude, the more the happiness at the downfall of others, the more activation they had in the pleasure circuits of the brain, the physical pleasure circuits of the brain, which again draw on an underlying uh, substrate for social pleasure as well. Isn't that, again, just a really interesting study? I think in, what? Terrible. Well, it was humans, the human condition, and we can practice with these things. I think the opposite of schadenfreude is mudita, you know, with sympathetic joy, you know, happiness at the good fortune of others. Okay? So let's see if I have any more. All right, so now move to the next slide, please. Okay, great. So now, in addition to these temporary changes, of mental activity, it also produces lasting changes in neural structure. And this is where we're really talking about the point of today, what's called neuroplasticity. And there are many examples of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is accomplished through um, a number of functions. One is that busy regions of the brain get more blood. They get more supplies because they need more oxygen and glucose. Also, existing synapses are, are strengthened because neurons that are routinely stimulated become more sensitive to input. Additionally, related to the work of, as I said, Donald Hebb here in Canada, um, neurons that fire together wire together. And they build neural structure in a variety of ways. Busy synapses become more sensitive to stim stimulation and also new, new synapses are built. It's also the case that synapses that are not used wither away. For example, a three-year-old has about three times as many synapses as a 30-year-old. It doesn't mean that the 30-year-old got dumb. 
It just means that there is what's called neural Darwinism, or survival of the busiest. If you use it, you keep it. If you don't use it, you lose it. Which takes me to the next slide now. This is a slide of um, people who had a long time meditative practice in which it was found, as I said earlier, that parts of the brain that are routinely used in meditative practice became measurably thicker, which maps to tens of thousands, probably tens of millions, maybe tens of billions new synapses in parts of the brain that are now measurably thicker. Three parts were detected. Uh, the first is the anterior cingulate cortex, or the more of the executive frontal systems of the brain, not just in the anterior cingulate, but in the frontal systems in general that control attention. The second region was the insula, which we talked about earlier. The insula is also very involved in empathy, which is something we'll be exploring a lot after lunch, the neural substrate of empathy, especially for the emotions of other people, distinct from the actions or the thoughts of other people. And the third region is a small region on the top. That's somatosensory cortex, just because they're paying attention to their body. So you can see this is an example of where a mental activity produces lasting changes in neural structure. I gave another example previously, the pianist example. It's also the case for worse. Routine mental activity around extremes of depression and stress also change neural structure, like shrinking the hippocampus. On the bright side, one of my favorite studies, London taxicab drivers who have to memorize the twisty, turny, spaghetti snarl of streets in London, right? At the end of their training, the hippocampus, the part of the brain that does visual-spatial memory, is measurably thicker than it was then at the beginning of the training. Isn't that kind of wild? All right. Now, the interesting thing, if you look in the lower right-hand side, you see this scatter plot. The meditators, and this was not a longitudinal study. These were groups of meditators that were matched for age and duration of contemplative practice against other people of similar ages who did not have a contemplative practice. And the meditative practice the meditators did was the usual messy real world stuff. 20 minutes today, 40 minutes tomorrow, no minutes the day after, right? Whatever, the real world. Interestingly, as I said earlier, we lose about 10,000 brain cells a day. Therefore, there is what's called cortical thinning. The cortex gets thinner and thinner. The people in the red squares, that's the control group, they experienced normal cortical thinning over age, at, you know, older people compared to younger people. But look at the blue line going across. The blue circles are the meditators. They experienced no cortical thinning in the part of the brain that they were using. That has a lot of implications for an aging population. The studies on the impact of contemplative practice on the brains of old people, including people experiencing cognitive decline or dementia, are really, really, really rudimentary. One of the early studies, uh, anecdotally, it appears to be the case that sometimes people die, and for some reason their brain is autopsied. Um, sometimes it's um, Alzheimer's-like plaques are found in the brains of people who are not symptomatic, who have a steady meditative practice, which suggests, again, it's not strong evidence, but it's very provocative, isn't it, that they're developing protective or compensatory factors right, that can help compensate for some of these negative pathological conditions. There was also one study that was done in America um, uh, on 85 people who had um, early Alzheimer's 
And it was discerned that religious life, which was very vaguely defined, just kind of general religious life, correlated with about a 15% reduction in symptoms of the progression of Alzheimer's. Well, that's the maximum benefit you can get from medication today. So in other words, having some kind of spiritual life, which probably confers most of its benefits through just down-regulating stress. Stress is bad for the brain. And the thing I said earlier, stress means cortisol. Cortisol is bad for the brain. Right? There's a place for short-term you know, stress, including positive stress, but low-grade chronic stress, bad for the brain. All right? Bottom line, though, it's interesting that some kind of spiritual life, and only one member of the study was a, was a Buddhist, right? They were mostly Christians uh, in this study. Nonetheless, religious life can seem to confer as much benefit in terms of the reduction of Alzheimer's symptoms as the very best combinations of medication today. Very, very interesting stuff. Okay? So that takes me to the next slide. She got it, which is this wonderful point that the principal activities of the brain you know, are making changes in itself. And then the next slide thereafter, which gives us the third fact. This is the takeaway fact, the most important fact of all. Because, first fact, when the brain changes, the mind changes. And also because when the mind changes, the brain changes. That means you can use your mind to change your brain to change your mind in a targeted and directed way. That's self-directed neuroplasticity. And with the growing developments in science, some of which I've talked about today and after lunch I'll talk about a lot more that have to do with relationships, it's increasingly clear how to use targeted and specific mental activity that's aimed at the specific neural substrates, the specific neural foundations that we care about that are the basis of the mental states, the states of mind that, are our, that, we, that we really care about. We don't experience the brain directly, generally speaking, right? But we do experience the mind, right? And so if we want a mental state like loving kindness or patience instead of or sympathetic joy instead of schadenfreude, Right? Or peace instead of anger, or gratitude instead of depression. If we want that, or if we want steadiness of mind, let's say, instead of distractibility, we can skillfully stimulate, which means strengthen, because neurons that fire together wire together. We can skillfully stimulate the neural foundation of these positive states of mind. Okay. So, questions or comments or discussion about this? And then we'll do a little practice and have lunch. Okay? Comments or questions? Yeah, over there. Yeah, that's me. Sorry. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, her question basically is, what's the effect of intermittent learning? To generalize the question. In other words, what if you have a meditative practice for a while, and then you stop for a while, and then you start it again? Or what if for a while, you have a lot of positive life experiences, and then for a while, you have a lot of awful ones, and then you start having more positive experiences again? Can you go back to some of the original stuff? There's n I've never seen any really good research on that question applied specifically, certainly, to meditation. I think, though, just like the obvious and 
trite example almost of riding a bike. Once you learn to ride a bike, you never forget to ride a bike. I'll say for myself, I went on, a, Pascal was one of the teachers on a retreat I was on for much of June. And um, I've noticed that ever since, because uh, I lead a sitting group, a meditation group, every Wednesday night, and I'll just come in and sit down, or I'll do my own practice at home, and I, it's much easier for me to drop into a deep place, even though that at this point was two or three months ago, because something shifted. So I think there is learning. Now, the takeaway point for me about this is to really help the learning sink in so it stays with you, so that it's really there when you can finally get back to it an hour from now, a year from now, a decade from now. And that's why I think it's particularly important to, as we talked about last night, take in the good. Take the extra 20, 30 seconds to really register a positive state of mind so it leaves a kind of trail of breadcrumbs so you can get back to it again. All right, great. The other, related to that, I want to say something kind of from my heart that I thought about um, yesterday. I was talking about with Pascal, which is that in each of us, we've all had an experience of natural peace, of natural non-craving, non-clinging, you know, where for a moment at least, and maybe it was a day or maybe it was a Sunday afternoon in our grandmother's kitchen when she was making cookies, or maybe it was just sitting quietly with our cat in our lap or holding our baby or being in nature, or having, like the nuns did, a very profound experience of being a bride of Christ, let's say. Whatever it was. Maybe it's not even a conscious, explicit recollection, but it's more like a body knowing. We all know, deep down, what it feels like to be at peace. As someone said, the most important thing to remember is to remember the most important thing. In other words, to remember to remember is the most important thing. But to remember to come back to this foundation, this ground in ourselves of natural, simple well-being, non-craving, non-clinging, is a great resource in practice. It's to appreciate that, we, that it's already there. And it's not quite my topic um, today, but I'll just say in passing that there's good science that shows that the natural state of the brain, the natural home base of the brain, is characterized by calm, which is to say parasympathetic activation, contentment, in other words, when the brain is not hungry, it's not in pain, it's not chemically disturbed, it's not been assaulted, it doesn't feel threatened. It's also mildly contented is a mild, basic quality of well-being and happiness. Third, the brain is in a natural state of caring. Again, when people are not damaged um, neurologically or threatened or upset or starving or drowning or what have you, there's a natural caringness that moves out. And fourth, there's a natural creativity as a kind of um, emergent synergy of all three of those. And those three states have to do with the three fundamental motivational systems in the brain. Um, calm has to do with the avoiding system, which withdraws, pulls away from pain. Uh, contentment has to do with the approaching system, which pursues rewards like carrots or love or food or, or mates. 
and um, caring has to do with the attaching system that bonds with, with others, whether it's children or mates or us, right, these three systems. The natural state of those three systems, the natural home, is, is, as I said, a state of calm, caring, and contentment. Right? That's our home base. The problem is Mother Nature has evolved a brain that is driven from home like that. And much of the time, we experience that as the status quo. It's a kind of inner homelessness. We've lost our home. We're out of touch. That's why it's so important to make shelter for, to make sanctuary for in the mind, this fundamental experience of the, tr of the natural state, the natural mind, the natural condition of uh, calm, contentment, and caring. Right? And to have faith that that is your natural state, to have confidence in that. And, when, and to do what you can to drop into that state. Because then the more you, time you spend in that state of simple, ordinary, doesn't have to be perfect, but simple, ordinary, calm, caring, and calm, contentment, and caring, you're stimulating its neural foundation. And if you're stimulating the neural substrate of the natural state, you're strengthening it. So you're taking the fruit as the path. I've asked myself, what's the nature of the brain of a Buddha? Because that brain did not stop braining, right? The brain of a Buddha is just like a regular brain. It's just doing something different. What's the nature of the brain of an Arahant or a Buddha? And I think those three systems are still running, right? That Buddha brain is avoiding what's unwholesome. That Buddha brain is approaching what is wholesome, including the aspiration for awakening. And that Buddha brain is also attaching and connecting you know, with, um, with others. Okay? It's still active. So it's not that the brain stops. It's just that it shifts its mode of operation. It returns to its natural state. It returns home again. That's really good news. That's great news, actually. And the fact that because of applied neuro, because of neuroplasticity, the more we sink into that natural state and help grow it and create more room for it, and string together more seconds of our life that we're abiding in that ordinary natural state. The good news is that we're building up the substrate of it in the brain. So increasingly it becomes our default. And it becomes harder and harder to knock us out of that natural state. Even to the point that a, a Tibetan monk in some prison in you know, Tibet um, can stay in that heart of caring even when there are intense pressures to knock him out of that natural state. Okay, one person, and then we'll do a brief practice and have lunch. Yes, please. Great question. Um, <clears throat> so, the question is about what's called, some people say, the hedonic set point. Think of it as like a temperature setting, a thermostat. This is your happy stat, all right? All right, some people are born fairly cheerful. I, I got the genetic lottery. All right. I've had difficulties in my life, but I got lucky with my genes. And um, my dad is just cheerful. Right? My mom was more depressive. I have a fair amount of, I'm sure, temperament from my father's side for some reason. In any case, there are other people who, who, who have a basic melancholy. You know, the four dispositions that the ancients noticed, sanguine, choleric, melancholic, and phlegmatic. You know, I don't know what the French translation is. Um, but they're basically sort of cheerful, right? 
sort of gloomy, sort of irritable, or sort of flat. <laughs> Those like the four main dispositions. That's okay. But, and I think it's important to appreciate neurological diversity and to not feel bad about who one is if, for example, your tendency is toward melancholia or irritability. That's just more content of mind. You know, we kind of prefer cheerfulness, but cheerfulness is just another content of mind. We should not become attached to being sanguine or cheerful, just like we should not get attached to being choleric or angry. Point one, right? Point two, um, <clears throat> and by the way, in passing about neurological diversity, another way to think about that is the temperamental spectrum, where at one end we have more anxious, rigid people, and at the other we have more spirited or ADHD people. Turtles at one end, jackrabbits at the other, right? It's all important. I think most spiritual practices, certainly in Buddhism, were developed by turtles for turtles to make them better turtles. <laughs> but what about the jackrabbits of the world? And then what about people who maybe have been born kind of more in the middle? I don't know what that would be. Maybe that's more like, I don't know what. What would be in the middle? Like a turtle, jackrabbit? A swan. A swan. I love that. A swan or a squirrel, something more kind of in the middle, whatever. But who've grown up in a jackrabbit culture. This is a real jackrabbity culture, isn't it? Okay. Uh, what do you do? So that's why I also think it's important to adapt practices for your own natural temperament as well as the temperament that you've been kind of trained in. And that's why suggestions like the five suggestions I offered to me are so helpful to, to bring the mind back or to build out the basis in the brain for steadiness of mind. Okay, now all that said, um, changing the hedonic set point, the happy stat, is actually possible. There was some early research that said that, you know, that set point is pretty set. It's actually not true. That with effort and with practice, people can push that set point up. Also, painful, awful experiences, particularly if, they're, if one feels helpless and they're repeated and they're severe, can push that set point in the other direction. There is a fundamental plasticity. All right. For me, the takeaway point is to allow and accept our natural temperament to be what it is. It is what it is, right? It's just more content, just more grist for the mill, while at the same time pulling weeds and planting flowers in the garden of the mind, you know? Pulling up the, because our disposition can dispose us in one way or another. You know, I'm cheerful, so I'm kind of disposed toward pleasure seeking. And um, so for me, uh, sobriety in a fundamental kind of way, not so much about drugs and alcohol, but a general kind of sobriety, it's been a very important practice. Other people who have more of a depressive temperament, they're more biased toward the negativity bias. They're more biased toward the negative and therefore they're more vulnerable. So part of a lot of practice is to know our temperament, is to know our neurology and then work with that in a skillful way. The second thing, is, of course, in general, to develop wholesome qualities of mind, to plant flowers. I think that's really, really important. And most fundamental of all, most fundamental of all, beneath the level of weeds or flowers, is to appreciate that the fundamental nature of things is Buddha. The fundamental nature of things is emergent, generative, and gracious. That's the nature of things, if you think about it. Everything else is content, just eddies swirling along. But the nature of eddying, the nature of the river of both materiality and mind is what I just said. 
It's, it's emergent, it's endlessly vanishing, and it's also regenerating. It's very generative and fertile. And it has a kind of benign quality. It keeps creating. And dropping down into whatever your own experience is of Buddha nature, or your own experience, perhaps, of the divine shining through, if that's part of your own experience or belief system, that's even deeper than pulling weeds or planting flowers in the garden of the mind. And that's dropping down into our true condition right, as the deepest refuge of all. Do a little practice. Brief. Thank you for letting me go here. So very briefly. Let's kind of get settled. So we're going to do a simple practice for these three systems and see if you can find your way back to a kind of a body knowing, maybe a body memory of your own kind of natural state. So first we'll start with the approaching system and see if you can bring to mind something that helps you feel at least a little bit grateful. And see if you can get a sense through gratitude or gladness of being already full. So that at least for a moment, there doesn't need to be an urgency in the mind about getting more. You're already grounded in gratitude and gladness. Not forcing, not straining, not getting mad at yourself if something doesn't come. Just gently opening to and encouraging gratitude and gladness. And then second for the attaching system, while continuing to feel a basic background sense of gladness or gratitude or contentment even, see if you can also open up to some sense of being cared about. Perhaps a pet, a spirit, a dear friend, a parent, a child, whatever gives you the feeling of being already loved. And may also open up a feeling of being loving.
so that here too you can relax any sense of straining for love, any sense of needing to strain to receive appreciation. Already all right in terms of feeling connected and caring. And now, still feeling a background sense of gladness or gratitude, and also a background sense of already belonging, already being joined to others who care about you. Opening up now to a growing sense of safety and strength and calm. not reacting to threat. Feeling increasingly tranquil and at peace. like to have a general sense, to the extent you do, of gladness, love, and peace as a kind of whole, resting in the natural state, coming home. To your base, Gladness, love, peace. Not craving, not resisting.
you. Uh, it's worth exploring that natural state, even as we do something like talk and have lunch and so forth. If it's all right, um, I propose, partly because I went a little long in the morning, that we have 45 minutes for lunch because it's here, right? We don't have to go anywhere, correct? And it's good food. So how about we start again at 1.35, okay? 1.35, thank you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Pascal, please listen to Pascal, I will. Hi, everyone. Um, so I just uh, wanted you to be aware of something that is going on here as we're uh, uh, doing what we're doing today that is, might help you raise your level of gratitude and uh, feeling cared for. Because I think it's, a, it's something actually very beautiful that some of you are aware of. Um, uh, following the, the Buddhist tradition, uh, Rick is offering uh, what he's doing here freely to us. This is a gift that he's giving to us. The money you pay to be here today is to pay for the lunch, the flight, the hotel, uh, so we can have him here. But he's actually getting no money from the ticket that you, uh, you paid for being here today. And in, yeah, so it's generously offered. In the same tradition, what uh, we do as lay people receiving teaching is that we offer, uh, we can offer back uh, something. So in the back of the, uh, the other room there, there's a little dana box, and you can see it's written dana for teacher. And uh, I would like us to, um, he's, gonna, he's gonna be very happy on the way back home thinking how generous he's been with, with us. This is really a source of joy. He's, oh, he's neuroplasticizing <laughs> his own mind. Oh, I am. I'm taking it in. Right the now. best generosity is your attentiveness and support, really. I'm just, <laughs> this is good. And so My little neurons are really exchange. firing together. Yeah, there's a beautiful exchange going on. <clears throat> and if we were to really uh, be generous and support him uh, by leaving donations in this box, that is the teacher box, uh, in the form of cash or checks written to uh, Rick's name, uh, that would allow him to uh, have a car, eat at home, put his uh, kids through college, uh, pay for medical insurance. I mean, and veterinary bills for my cat, but anyway. Yeah. In the old tradition, uh, a monk would come or a nun would give a teaching, and uh, the lay people would offer uh, lodging, food, uh, uh, medicine and clothing. And now in the modern world where we're lay people teaching to lay people, it's very important to keep the, the, um, the, the, the support going in all directions. I know this is how I live. And it's a great source of, of, source of joy to come back and say, wow, people, it's an economy of generosity. This is a radical practice. So I invite you to think about this during lunch and later in the afternoon, the bucks will be there. and. Uh, Maybe I'll mention it again at the end of the day, but I wanted you to know this, because all this that is flowing, this beautiful years of, uh, you know, practice of uh, uh, meditation, exploration, clinical work, study, all this that is flowing like this is offered freely. This is an amazing thing. Bon appétit. Yeah, happy. And we'll also invite uh, Rick to, uh, jump the line if he wants to. Oh, no. At any time. I'll talk for a little while with people if you like, and then I'll jump. Yeah.
this because for me, uh, between my fibromyalgia, my hypermobility syndrome, my chronic fatigue syndrome, multinology greater, I'm hypersensitive to everything. Touch, smell, light. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.